When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. So grateful you're going to spend some time with us again, and so grateful for all the time you spent with us since we've began this podcast uh, a little over a year ago, year and a half, I guess. MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook. Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com. So it's Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. And Seton, we do have some news that we'll be discussing on an upcoming episode about what's going on in the case. Explain some of those things. We have a couple of filings in Ellick Murdoch's murder trial that we are, we'll discuss in our next episode. And we also have some filings in Russell Lafitte's federal case. So next episode, we will cover all that with John. And I think this upcoming episode is pretty interesting. But if you're just here for Murdoch, we'll see you next week. Exactly right. This is just another dive into another true crime event. And uh, you'll hear some familiar names in this episode, like Dick Harpootlian, for instance. Uh, We hope you will enjoy it. And we hope that you have a wonderful holiday. And uh, we thank you for the some six million plus downloads we've had. And we hope you'll enjoy this true crime event from South Carolina. Today's a bonus episode for those who love the true crime, a true crime gruesome story that happened in South Carolina in the 80s. So we have some familiar names in the story. We have Dick Harpootlian, who we know is the attorney representing Alec Murdoch. He was also the attorney who represented one of the defendants who was eventually convicted of murder in this case. You will also hear the name Bulware, which is pronounced differently in the low country. Uh, this family is from the Columbia area, so we're going to pronounce it the way that it's spelled, which is Bulware. And as you may recall, the Murdoch family purchased the Moselle property from a Bulware family, and the person in this case is distantly related to the Bulware family. From the low country. From the low country. Sure. According to the, an article... By the Associated Press, November 30th, 1984, in the woods just north of Columbia, South Carolina, on a Friday, three hunters spotted a body. Now, it's just a body. No head, no hands. And then the hunters go to find the guy who leased this hunting property to them. I remember there's no cell phones, so they can't call somebody. they got to go. So they go to try to find the owner of the property. And... When the hunters and the owner get back to where the torso was, it is gone. 
Yes. So the hunters said that they were at the property to fire some hunting rifles when they discovered the body in a wooded area of the property. The torso was partially wrapped in a tent. Uh, They returned after about an hour with the owner and the body was gone. Uh, They... And we should note that in South Carolina, it's kind of common for people to lease hunting mm-hmm. property from people who have big properties for that purpose. Um, it's I've kind of found it curious to why the owner, why the hunters went to the owner instead of going to law enforcement. Well, they might have went to the owner and called law enforcement from his cabin or wherever there was a landline. And then came back. That's possible. I mean, I live in a world of cell phones now, so yes. it's kind of trying to get back to 1984 right. to kind of think about how things were done then is difficult yeah. to wrap your head around. So they went, they found him, and like then they called and then he went. Uh, so in the AP article, the sheriff at the time, Frank Powell, says, quote, it was a very bizarre case with a person calling in and saying, hey, I saw a person with no head or hands, and then one and a half hours later, the body was gone. Now, law enforcement searched the area, they did find a four-inch splinter of what they believe to be a human bone, some flesh, and a blood-soaked nylon jacket. Now, remember this. This is important, that, that bone fragment. Keep that in your mind because it comes up later, an important part in the trial of the accused murderers. Uh, just, just remember that, that splinter of what appeared to be a human bone. So I guess upon return, the hunters and the owner noticed a maroon automobile in the proximity to where the hunters had seen the body. And the owner of the property, whose name was John Van Frank, approached the vehicle and spoke to two men. One of the men, who was later identified as Anthony Two-Time Tony Spotnik, was outside the vehicle, and another man, who was later identified as Charles Richard Schraw, was inside the vehicle. And Van Frank, the owner of the property, asked about the body... And Spodnik responded, well, there's no body down here. We're digging up some dope. <laughs> Jeez. What a dig- I know. No, no big deal. Just digging up some dope. And he described Shra as having wild eyes, uh, and he was wearing white socks on his hands. Van hmm. uh, Frank also, yeah, very bizarre, right? White socks on his hands. It's, uh, you know, can you not afford gloves? Yeah. It, <laughs> I, it, that, to me, just, just sticks out in my mind. Was he right. trying to... Um, hide something on his hands. Or fingerprints. Or, or fingerprints, or maybe, I, I just don't know. Or so maybe he maybe was on drugs. Maybe a show. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Van Frank also observed a shovel and a black box wrapped in plastic in the back seat. And we should note that these two men who were in the automobile were renting property. They are renting a house on Van Frank's property. Gotcha. Now, the hunter's... They found that body on a Friday. It wasn't until 5 p.m. the following Wednesday that search teams came upon a head and hands buried in a shallow hole in the woods about 80 feet from where the torso was originally spotted. Yes, and it was wrapped in a towel with was described as a red substance by law enforcement, but that's probably presumably blood. So Friday, the... Torso, the hunters say, and then 5 p.m. Wednesday, the head and hands, and then 12.30 Thursday, 12.30 p.m., in the watery swamp, they found the rest of the body, 30 miles from where they found the head and hands. And the authorities identified the victim as 33-year-old Thomas Bulware, who had the nickname Anvilhead, 
Right. So I looked up anvil head just to see what that was. And it's a metal working tool that consists of a large block of metal with a flattened top surface upon which another object is struck. And I just kind of thought that was a very weird name. I mean, was it because of the... Like a flat head. Did he have a flat head or was it... It's like an anvil, the blacksmith used it, and anvil's what... Do you think it's because that's the way his head was shaped? or you I think, think his head was shaped like an anvil, maybe. Oh, I thought maybe it was kind of because he was a tough guy and maybe... Oh, maybe like his head was hard? I don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> well the anvil's a thing that Coyote threw at the Roadrunner a lot. Oh, oh, <laughs> I did not go. know that. Uh, okay, so now December 6th we move forward to where Charles Richard Sherraw, he was 33 at the time, He's from South Carolina, was arrested at two in the afternoon and charged with the murder of Bulware. So Charles Richard Sherraw, all these guys have nicknames in this story. Sherraw was known as Righteous Richard. And at the same time that law enforcement announced the arrest of Sherraw, Sheriff Powell said he had issued a murder warrant for Anthony John Spodnik, 32, and said Spodnik had left Columbia Powell warned in the paper that Spodnik was, quote, extremely dangerous. Spodnik was from Connecticut, the sheriff said, and his nickname was Two-Time Tony. Uh, The sheriff also released a couple of details. The suspects, he believed, burned the victim's belongings on the Friday when the hunters found the the, uh, torso. And Powell said he believed the motive was revenge. The other thing the sheriff said in the newspaper was that he was denying a report out there that said a chainsaw was used to cut up the body. He said it was not a chainsaw. But we should also note that the owner of the property, John Frank, said that he kept at least two handsaws at the house to cut wood because there was a wood stove at the property. Which means, and we'll learn out later, that the body was chopped up by a handsaw. Imagine how difficult that must be as opposed to the chainsaw. Yeah, it seems... Scary. Extra extra freaky. Uh, the warrant for Spodnik was issued in December. He was finally arrested in April when investigators tracked Spodnik into Jacksonville, Florida. They've been looking for him for months, and they were following him around, and uh, they found him in a phone booth. So 1980s here stuff. Yeah, there's no phone booths anymore. <laughs> Two-time Tony Spodnik had been previously arrested in Virginia for possession of cocaine and for smuggling a firearm into Washington, D.C., and then we go on to the trials, and Charles Richard Sherrod was tried first, and that trial lasted three days. So the death penalty was not sought against Sherrod because of Bulware's involvement with the killers in drug trafficking, drug use, motorcycle gangs, and heavy drinking. And some of the facts from this case, uh, stories from this case, uh, Sherrod's attorney claimed that Sherrod was high and coerced into a confession that he had given after being arrested. And Sorrell said that he confessed because he wanted to see his fiancée, Michelle Pineda. Yes, so he said that he was coerced into this confession. He says that he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol while he gave his confession, but that was disputed by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his girlfriend or fiancée at the time said that she heard Spodnik say that Spodnik wanted to kill Bulware. Yeah, so Michelle Pindea uh, was Shiraz's girlfriend or fiancé at the time, and she testified that she was in a bar called Cookies Bear Den Bar with both men when she overheard a conversation between the two men. 
She stated that Spodnik was really mad at the victim and mad enough to kill him. Um, she then had lunch the next day with Spodnik, her fiance, Shara, and Mr. Bulware. And she says that Spodnik was driving a maroon automobile. Which we referenced earlier because the hunters and the, the landowner, the original part of the story, said that they saw these two guys in the maroon automobile. Now, Shara also testified that Spodnik and Bulware were drug dealers. Shara's saying, ah, I wasn't part of that, but those guys did it. Bulware, he said, also sold $15,000 worth of Spodnik stuff. Yeah, I guess Spodnik was in jail, and that's when this, these items were sold. Okay, so because I, I wonder how he even had $15,000 worth of stuff. But Shiraz said uh, Spodnik owed him $1,000 for drugs, and Spodnik offered Shiraz $500 to help kill Bulware. And Shiraz like, I, I didn't take him up on that offer. But then after the murder, Shiraz, murder, Shiraz said Spodnik gave him a grand. Right. But that was not in payment for any reason. But Shiraz did say that he was threatened um, after he refused to help Spodnik um, kill to kill Bulware. So. Yeah. And, he, and he, it's, it's so crazy because he said Spodnik owed him a grand for drugs. And then he said Spodnik gave him a grand. But it wasn't for drug. It was just just randomly happened to match the same amount of money that he owed him. Um, and uh, what about the testimony? Yeah, so some of the testimonies, Shiraz said that they were going, the three men were going to go dig up some drugs. Um, and then I guess they went to the property where they were renting this house. And Spodnik and Bulware got out of the car to get something out of the trunk. And Spodnik hit Bulware with a baseball bat. Um, and then at this point, Shara gets out of the car and Spodnik tells him to hit Bulware. Hmm. Uh, in the testimony is quoted, it says, Tony says, give me the bat and I'll show you why they call me two time. And then he hit him over the head two times. Jeez. Wow. Um, Shara went on to say that Spodnik stabbed Bulware in the throat, ear, slashed his wrist. And then amputated his head and hands. Damn. <sighs> um, and Spodnik says that Bulware was a really hard person to kill. Wow. So he, after he does it, he's standing there. That's what Shara said. He said, Spodnik's like, wow, that was a tough guy to kill. Yeah. And Shara then says that he didn't have any reason to kill anybody. Hmm. That's his story. And he's sticking to it. Yes. The pathologist testified that the victim probably died from lacerations of the brain caused by a blunt instrument and a stab wound. So the trauma to the head caused by the bat or the stabs could have caused his death. On August 7th, uh, Sorrell testified that Spodnik had sent death threats to his mother. Well, he said he was in fear for his own safety and for his mother's safety. Mm -hmm. He threatened to kill both of them. So interesting, after this, there were news reports that after Shara was convicted, he sought a murder contract for the solicitor and other members of the prosecution staff. What do you mean, for, what a murder contract? I guess it was more to like Pee Wee Gaskins. He was, he was trying to have a hit on the, wow. the prosecution who put him in jail. Jeez. Uh, it, he does remain in jail in South Carolina, and he is eligible for parole in October of 2022. Huh. However, he has many, he's had many offenses while he's been incarcerated, yeah. and that's public record. You can actually look it up if you would like to get on. A bunch on. of things we looked at. Yeah. 
Uh, now we move on to the trial of Smot- Spotnik, who two-time Tony, they called, and Dick Carpootlian, one of Alec Murdoch's attorneys, was the court-ordered attorney for him. And Shra was convicted the day before the trial of Spodnik started, right? Yes. And Shra was supposed to testify against Spotnik. And he, I think he kind of thought he had this deal worked out because he was actually the person that led law enforcement to the body of Mr. Bulware. Um, so he gets up in the trial and he says, my name is Charles Righteous Richard Shraw, which to me, I felt like I was listening to Pulp Fiction. Righteous Richard. Uh, yeah. Doesn't it sound like that? Yeah. So he said he refused to read what was written in his confession, but he did have something to say. <laughs> uh, obviously, he had issues with his uh, confession, and we talked a little bit about that, and we'll talk with John in a bit about it. But he said um, he was advised that he couldn't just give a statement that he had to just answer questions because he was a witness. You can't just get up and say what you want. speech, right? Right. You have to answer the questions that the lawyer is asking you. And so he says, in that case, I declined to make any statements at this time. So the lawyer asked the judge to order Shara to testify. To this, Shara replied, go ahead, punk. I don't care what you do. What are you going to do? Put me in jail longer than life. Again, just the day before he had been sentenced to life in prison. Yes. So the judge advised him that he could receive an additional sentence for six months onto his life sentence <laughs> uh, if he refused to testify. And a life sentence, it's, it wasn't life sentence without parole. So, right. Well, he's still up for parole. Right. He, well, he'll, in October, he'll be yeah. up for parole. Um, and he responds, I absolutely refuse, point blank, period. Mm. It might as well be six million months. But, you know, life plus a month, he's thinking, I'll never get out. But now, look, he, if he would have held himself together, might have... Uh, Ended up getting parole at some point. Right. I mean, he was 33 at the time of his conviction. So, I mean, now I, I'd have to do the math. But he's, he's, he's still hanging in there, though. But I, I highly doubt he's going to get out in October. Uh, so anyway, Spotnik's trial continues. The jury deliberates for two and a half hours. They come back with a guilty verdict. And he is sentenced to life in prison. And he goes into the appeal process. And that's why... We bring in our legal analyst, former defense attorney and former prosecutor, John Snyder. Hey, John. Hello. Hey, John. So we're going through this old case from 1984, this murder, and where a bullware was murdered and the head chopped off, the hands chopped off, and two guys arrested and charged and convicted. One was Charles Richard Seurat. Sherrod was 33, he was charged, and so was uh, this Spodnik character, Anthony John Spodnik, who was known as Two-Time Tony, and Spodnik is the one who uh, started using the appeal process, and his court-appointed attorney was Dick Carpootlian, side note there. So uh, there's many questions uh, that we have about this case, and Spodnik had questions, and we have questions. That's why John's here. Go ahead, Seton. So I kind of first wanted to talk about, in Spodnik's case, they were unable to use the written confession of Shara. Shara was supposed to testify against Spodnik in his trial, but he didn't. Um, so I just kind of wanted to ask you, why weren't they able to use Shara's written confession? They were 
not able to use it in their case in chief because he was available to be there as a witness. And so in in court proceedings, if somebody is alive and can testify, that is always better than a writing or recording. And then you get into all these exceptions when the declarant is unavailable. I also remember this is not... 19, this is 1984-85, so the idea of the videotape and all that stuff and depositions might be a little different, right? It's, it's still, well, it's still early, but it's, it's, it's still the rule today, which is courts want the best evidence that can be had. So if it's between a written statement that you've offered or you speaking yourself, Courts have a preference that you speak yourself, and right. then your written statement can be used either against you or in furtherance of what you've said. Well, what about using a statement from one person that could be self-serving and prejudicial against someone else? So that would be um, it, that that would be subject to the case law of individual states, and so some some states might allow a self-serving statement if the declarant's unavailable, but with an instruction that, you know, you're, you're to consider it only part way. So it, it just kind of depends on the jurisdiction. And then, you know, I think Matt accurately points out 1984 is a completely different legal world than, than now. Another thing that happened was that Sherrall stated that his confession was given while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And you know, law enforcement says, as they would always say, nah, it was all good. He also felt pressured because he thought they would not release his girlfriend. Uh, how does that affect uh, admissibility of the statement? It, I, again, it's like, when did he tell the officers at the time, I've, you know, I've just smoked, you know, some pineapple express and I am feeling groovy <laughs> or is he completely coherent through the interview process? And then at the back end says, Oh, I'm on drugs. Like it, it, that that's where juries get to weigh the, the people testifying. It, it's where juries get to see uh, how people act when they're under you know, under oath and when they're being examined and cross-examined. So he generally to be able to give a confession, you have to have capacity. Okay. So right. that's, that is the general rule. But if you don't say, I don't know what my name is right now. Cause I've just finished two fifths of Jim Beam. You're not going to be able to use that as a defense later on. Gotcha. Okay, so and, and and now law enforcement goes through a whole series of questions that are recorded to avoid that very thing oh. from becoming a, a future issue, and sure. that and we can talk about that at the end of some of these questions of how how careful law enforcement is now to avoid the issues that are raised and were raised frequently in a criminal appeals. So both victims were convicted on basically circumstantial evidence. So I kind of just want to have a conversation about 
this with you and explain the difference between circumstantial and direct evidence and how this comes into play in a trial. Yeah. And, and this is a great one because I, I think there's a common, there's a common misconception maybe of people saying, well, you can't be convicted on circumstantial evidence. And, and the fact is you can be convicted on circumstantial evidence because circumstantial evidence is valid. And the, the easiest and clearest example uh, I can give of this is direct evidence is I see snow falling from the sky, hitting the ground. That is direct evidence. My eyes see it. Circumstantial evidence is I wake up in the morning, I pull back the curtains, and I see that there's snow on everything. Both direct and circumstantial evidence would prove that it snowed last night. Gotcha. And circumstantial evidence isn't any weaker because it's circumstantial. There's only one way this could have happened. And so in both this case and in the case that you know we're always talking about, circumstantial evidence is completely acceptable. Like no one else had access to a bank account, you know, improperly set up by a practicing lawyer. No one. And so while we don't have tape of him writing checks from the account and giving it to a bad guy, we do have, mm -hmm. you know, bank records showing it went in and it went out. And so that's that again, circumstantial evidence is of the same value as direct evidence, because if, if it's a impossibility for it to be anything other than it snowed last night, you know, so, so in that example, you would have to say that a, there was a, uh, Kona ice machine explosion and <laughs> it, you know, it blanketed the, you know, right. one square mile, like that, that's impossible. And so, Circumstantial evidence is completely acceptable and a reliable way to prove a case. Especially there's a lot of it, right? I mean, they, they, they see the guys in a maroon car, which is near where the body was found. They have a connection to the guy. They, you know, have this girlfriend that tells the story. They were seen together the yeah. day before. So that's just a ton of circumstantial yeah. would yeah, matter as opposed to one thing. The guys see a dead body. Yeah. They see a dead body and then they see guys near where the dead body was when they saw it last. With white socks on his hands. And, uh, right. Yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> uh, let's see. Both guys uh, appealed the convictions. Um, the appeals process, uh, how does that, uh, what's the basic timeline yeah. and how does that work? So, it, very common in murder cases. And this is, again, relevance to, to our case that we love to talk about the old Murdoch is you have to have everything in fantastic order because you know, in a murder case where somebody's either going to life, you know, the life in prison or getting the death penalty, there's going to be appeals right? on, on literally every aspect of the criminal investigation on how the trial was conducted and how the, the people participating in the trial act and what they 
what they say. And so in a, in a criminal trial, yeah, after, after a conviction, you have a certain number of days to enter a notice of appeal. And that appeal goes first to a court of appeals in your state. And then if they find grounds or there's a dissent, it can go up to the Supreme Court of your state. And in death penalty cases and some other cases, those can go directly to the Supreme Court of the United States. Okay. And in a lot of appeals, you can have, uh, and like in the, in the Shiraz case here, they appealed both in state court and in federal court. And the federal court's like, hey, this is actually a state court thing. Go back over there to ask them these questions. Okay. So what? Oh, and, and it's important to note it on an appeal, they are only looking at it from the legal aspect. They are not a they are not a fact gatherer. So the record, what they can consider is only what's put in by either side's counsel. So speaking of that, one thing that came up in the Spodnik appeal was this bone fragment, and it was described as having dried meat on it at the present time by the officer who was describing it during the hearing. Um, and Harpootlian didn't want the fragment admitted into evidence. On appeal, it was argued that the admission of this bone fragment with human flesh was irrelevant, it didn't have probative value, and infected the trial. And basically, his fundamental right to get a fair trial uh, in accordance with his 14th Amendment right to due process. Can you explain this? And let's so that is a common defense lawyer objection in a murder trial to be like, oh, please don't sh don't show the dead body. Don't show the don't show the pictures. You know, the defendant shot somebody, but the defense lawyer says, oh, the jury will be so inflamed from seeing a picture of someone with unplanned holes in them that we won't be able to get a fair trial. And, and it almost universally now is rejected by trial courts and appellate courts as being a basis for appeal. You will see this objection made in the Murdoch cases if it goes to trial on any kind of murder case where the state enters in pictures of evidence that are clearly probative, clearly go to the heart of the matter to prove guilt, and they're going to object. And, and the objection may be overruled in court, but then the appellate lawyers will come in and try to say it never should have been admitted. So the trial, the trial attorney's job is to object and to to create a record for for the appeal, and the appellate lawyer would then go back and and kind of pull on all of those objections. It's the base. So it's a basic thing. They say this is too gross and too nasty, and once they see this, they won't even be able to hear what's being said. They'll be so just uh, the, the, disgusted by the, the jury violence. Will get vapors. They'll just they'll just fall out from. They'll be so yes. upset by seeing this picture of a of a dead body that you know in many murder cases was made dead by the person sitting at the table next to defense counsel. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it's, I've always thought it was kind of silly. I mean, there's no question why the jurors are there. Mm -hmm. The jurors are aware at the, at the opening of the case, that they're going to see evidence that 
that makes them uncomfortable. It's a murder case after all. It's not, um, you know, it's not Robbery. fighting over, you know, happy cat art. <laughs> yeah, like it's 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 going to be gross because they're going to, you know, a, a, a forensic, uh, you know, the pathologist is going to come in and say a bullet fragment severed a cor- cor- or, you know, severed artery. an artery. Yeah. And they bled out. Like that's, you know, that's you not, it. it's fascinating to me, but that's, I'm not normal in that regard. Yeah. Anything else, Seton? Yep. I think that's it. All right, John. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I mean, th- this is this. These older cases are great in understanding what we'll see in the Murdoch cases moving forward. Once, once, or if trials on these criminal charges begin, assume, assuming that guilty pleas aren't aren't entered right. all over the place. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you. Speaking of thank you, Seton. Yes, I also want to thank my sleuth friend who helped me compile all the legal documents as well as the articles from the state paper, the Sun News out of Myrtle Beach, the Greenville News, the Herald out of Rock Hill, the Columbia Record that we were able to use for this episode to make it possible. Again, uh, Facebook, Murdoch Podcast, MurdochPodcast.com, and we'll be back to Murdoch Mania very soon. We'll talk soon. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.